0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. What is the point? What is the point? Let me take you back to my very first day of my sophomore year of high school, Chanute Christian Academy. I asked my history teacher as we were beginning class, her name was Mrs. Fleming, I I asked if I could read from the Word of God. I said, I think it would be best if we started off as a Christian school, our class this year by reading from the Bible. And she said, okay, I, I guess that sounds good. So she invited me to the front and as I approached the podium, I read Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two from the New International Version, which says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I said to the class, you know, I I think we should all remember this every day of this class. And then I took my seat. Meaningless, pointless, purposeless, hopeless, empty, hollow, vain, vacuous, valueless. These are some of the other ways that we could translate this word that is being used. What is the point? What is the point? What's the point of your life? What is the point of your job, your work? What is the point of your pleasure and your enjoyment? What's the point in your suffering? Please open your Bibles now to the book of Ecclesiastes as we consider the incredible book of wisdom. Uh, Let me first off ask God Only Wise to give us wisdom now as we draw near His Word so that we might rightly hear and rightly apply. Dear Father, we need your help. Naturally, we only see the world from our natural vantage point, And we need experience, and we need to experience reality, and we need to experience it as you have created it. We need to respond to you in the right way, understanding divine and eternal realities. We need your help to lift our eyes and our line of sight above temporal circumstances so that we might see what you're doing, so that we might see what you have accomplished on our behalf. Lord, today, as I attempt to rapidly summarize this rich little book of truth, please give all who are hearing the wisdom to receive it. Help us to be reoriented around the gospel today. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has perplexed readers of the Bible for generations. It's nestled in with the other books of wisdom, yet it is utterly different and unique from the rest. The name of the book, Ecclesiastes, which simply means from the teacher or probably better described from the philosopher, is the word Kohelet. And if you want to feel as though you're going to have your head explode. All you need to do is read philosophy for a couple of hours, and it will feel like you have had a bowling ball in your mind trying to squeeze out of both ears. Philosophy is difficult, and the discipline is designed to ask the very basic questions of reality. What is truth? What is real? What is the cause of all things? Why are we here? But at the very bottom of all of the philosophical questions that have ever been asked is this one central question. What is the point? What's the point? There has long been a debate concerning the authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. You will see in verse one, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. For this reason, many people have assumed that the book book was written by Solomon towards the end of his life. And if that is the case, then this book is a form of public repentance as it were for pursuing years of satisfaction in all of the wrong places. And that's very possible. In fact, I generally lean in the direction, whenever there is question of, of authorship, I almost always lean in the traditional direction, saying that whatever name appears above it is probably the author. However, this book is written in a format that appears as though it may be pseudographical. That's just a big fancy word that means that this was not written by Solomon, Rather, it was written by someone who was putting the folly of Solomon on display. And he was doing so by putting himself in the perspective or the shoes of Solomon and preaching from his vantage point so that he could teach us how it is that Solomon made great mistakes. He wanted to show us that if you had all things, even to the extent that Solomon did, you would still never be fulfilled. So I lean in the direction of option number two, but I recognize there are compelling arguments for both sides, and regardless of authorship, the point still remains. As I have already mentioned, the point he is making is that everything is meaningless. Now, perhaps you were surprised to hear that statement from the Bible. Perhaps you're questioning whether or not I broke into your house last night, and I took your Bible, and I pasted these words onto your page. But... It's important to know that the Bible does ask this question. The Bible gives us freedom to answer philosophical questions such as this. Maybe you've never noticed that this little book in the Old Testament is claiming that everything that you have ever done or that you will ever do is ultimately worthless. Every accomplishment will amount to nothing. All of your combined efforts are nothing more than glorified garbage. That's what this book is saying. And this is all true based upon the parameters that the author has set in place in this book. You see, there is a very important phrase that is going to help us understand what the author is getting at. It is the most used refrain in the book. It is repeated over and over and over. 32 times you see this stated. It is the little statement, under the sun. Let's just consider a couple of these occasions. First of all, in chapter one, verse 14, it says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This striving after the wind is a beautiful image of chasing satisfaction without ever actually achieving it. It's the law of diminishing returns on steroids. No matter how fast you run and you chase that wind, you will never catch it. Everything that we do from an earthly perspective is nothing more than chasing the breeze. We would be crazy to think that you could reach it. You would be insane to think that you could go chase the wind and grab hold of it and receive it. In like manner, he is saying that everything you ever do from an earthly perspective has no lasting value. Chapter 9 verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun... The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, from our earthly vantage point, from where we are standing, there is no justice, nor is there true reward for labor. Just because you're smart, doesn't mean you're going to be rich. Just because you're strong, doesn't mean you win the battle. Just because you're fast, doesn't mean you're going to win the race. In other words, it's just luck, it's just chance. It's nothing more than a random assortment of the combination of time and chance colliding with one another. He says, but time and chance happen to them all. This is the mindset of somebody who can only see from an earthly perspective. This is the philosophy of anybody who fails to recognize God. And that is the point of this book. Ecclesiastes is showing us the foolishness of viewing the world in a godless manner. So hop on and buckle up because we are going to speed through the pages of this book as we rapidly consider various aspects of a life that is meaningless apart from God. In chapter 1, we see that applying yourself to deep knowledge and education is meaningless without God. In this case, when he uses the word wisdom, he is referring to wisdom in how things work, not wisdom as godly wisdom. So he's speaking about learning and going to school and studying and researching and discovering how things operate. And he says in verses 16 through 17, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. I just can't learn it all. I, I can't figure everything out. I, No matter how hard I study, there's still things I won't discover. I won't know. I won't learn. So higher learning, he says, ultimately is empty. It is vapid. It is worthless. But what about pleasure? What about hedonism? What about fulfilling all of my earthly desires? What if my days are just filled with ways to fix my appeals my my hunger for food and for mirth and for entertainment and for physical pleasure what if that's all i spend my life doing is getting what i want the philosopher recognizes that this too is meaningless or worthless or empty he says in chapter 2 verse 1 i said in my heart come now i will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself but behold this also was vanity but what about wealth What if we could just have everything we ever wanted because we had the money? We had a massive storehouse of wealth and we could purchase anything we desired. Well, in verses eight through 11, he said, I also gather for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all of it was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wow, There's nothing. It's empty. It's worthless. But what about the work itself? Maybe it's pointless, but at least it's something that I can do with my hands, and after I finish and I work and I strive and I plan and I build, at the end, I have something to look at and say, look what I did. I was able to achieve or complete or fulfill a task. Doesn't that fulfill me? Several years ago, I was watching an interview Uh, with Woody Allen, and he was, I think he was promoting a movie at the time, and as I was watching this interview, the interviewer asked him a question. I don't think he was expecting a deep philosophical response, but he received a deep answer that I was surprised to hear Woody Allen give. He said, when he was asked about the value of his artistic work in his movies, he said, you start to realize that eventually, and I'm talking about the big picture here, you die. And eventually the sun burns out, And the earth, it's gone. And eventually all the stars and all the universe goes. It disappears. Nothing is left at all. Nothing. Shakespeare, Beethoven, Michelangelo, gone. All gone. And you think to yourself, it's a lot of noise and sound and fury. And where's it all going? It's not going anyplace. It's not going anywhere. Later in the same interview, he says, you can't actually live your life like that, though. It's the job of the artist to figure out why, given this terrible fact, why even go on living? Why care about anything? And I thought, that is an incredibly honest interview with an unsaved man. That is an incredibly good look into the, the true philosophy of an unbelieving heart. He has only one vantage point, the vantage point of things under the sun. He doesn't acknowledge God. In fact, in that same interview, he denies the existence of heaven or hell as a possible reason to spur him on in his endeavors. But he basically argues that we must manufacture or pretend reasons to care about labor, to care about work. Why? Because ultimately, everything that we do, according to him, is going to all burn up or die out when the sun is over and when our universe ends. He himself uses the term that his work is meaningless. Woody Allen is simply voicing what the later parts of Ecclesiastes 2 is saying. When we examine this verse, uh, they can, we're not going to look at everything, but they can be summed up in verses 22 through 23, which says, what has a man from all the toil and all the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What does he get from all of this? For all of his days are full of sorrow, all of his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. Even this is vanity. Then we arrive at the most famous part of the book, chapter 3, which begins with the words that are made famous by Pete Singer or I'm sorry, Pete Seeger, who sang about this in 1959 in his hit single, turn turn turn. I'm sure you've probably heard it on the oldie station. For every season or for everything there is a season, and for every A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. By the way, that's right now, during COVID-19. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, of course, being a peace-loving hippie, Seeger removed the line about war and replaced it with some other words. But what is the point of these verses? It doesn't tell us the point here. He's simply saying, these are all things that we do. These are things that are part of the cycle of being a human. It says that there are times to do these things, but it doesn't yet tell you why we do them. To hear the answer, we need to go to the end of the chapter, verses 18 and following, which says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man And what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are but dust, and to dust they return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? When I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, you're gonna die. You will eventually die just like an animal. I'm not gonna get into the philosophy here that is about man being different than animals. Of course, if you know the scripture, you know that man is unique and separate and distinct from all of creation. It is him that the Lord breathed the breath of life into. We are unique and separate as the pinnacle of God's creation. And I can't tell you how many times I have watched nature documentaries or the Discovery Channel when they say man is just a highly evolved animal. That is the perspective of the world. We're no different than they are. They're just animals, we're just animals, and we end up in the same place. We end up in the dirt. I have shared with you before this story. I remember being a young man and going over to a friend's house, Jason Scobie's house. And I I was very concerned because I thought at that point that Jason had become a believer. His father definitely was not. And I began to explain the gospel in my limited ability to his father. And his dad stopped me in my tracks and said, listen, kid, when you die, you're worm food. That's what this man is saying. You're going to die, and you will be worm food just like every piece of roadkill that you've seen on the road in the last month. You have nothing unique or special or lasting or permanent about you if you're looking under the sun. If you are looking from a human perspective, you are going to die, and everything that you have accomplished, he says, is going to be inherited by somebody else. Just like everything else that lives, you're eventually going to come to an end, and from a worldly perspective, he is saying who knows if this life is all there is? He says, who knows if our spirit really goes anywhere? Maybe we just go into the dirt like they do. In chapter four, the philosopher explains that there is no ultimate value even in political advancement or career achievements. And I think this is very significant. He speaks in terms of this kid who is compared to a king and listen to what he says. He says, even the greatest rags to riches story is ultimately going to be forgotten in the works of history. He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne. Think about that. This guy was a prisoner, and he ultimately becomes the king. This guy is a rags-to-riches story if there ever was one, though in his own kingdom he had become poor. I saw all the living who move in and under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet, so in other words, this man is a king over a lot of people. He's in charge of all sorts. He is this powerful ruler who has gained the throne, yet he has forgotten what it means to be wise. It says, yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This guy achieved greatness. This man went from nothing to the chief and leader and supreme ruler of his country. Yet even the greatest of earthly kings are going to become nothing more then at best, a footnote in a history book that no one's going to read. Chapter five serves to summarize and reflect on chapters one through four in this way. It, It sums them up by saying, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If you've ever read the stories of people who win the lottery, they all need counsel. Why? Because they hunger for money and now they get what they wanted And it doesn't satisfy them he pushes it even further in chapter 6 verses 3 through 6 when he says if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial i say that a stillborn child is better off than he is do you hear what he's saying back then having children was a big deal like now People look at our family of five and they're like, whoa, you guys are you're pushing the boundaries here. You're having lots of kids. Back then, that was basically security because they are going to serve you and they are going to help you. They're going to work for you. They're free labor in that sense. They're going to care for your property. And eventually they will care for you when you are aging. And he says, listen, if you get to the point where you're literally not dying and you have no burial, even a stillborn child is better off than him. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness and in darkness, its name is covered, this baby who is stillborn. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the same, to one place. In short, the fact that you're going to die means that nothing ever matters in the long run. He's just summarizing that in another poetic way. Now, from this point moving forward in the book, the theme is going to focus deeply in on death. It's already talked about death to an extent. It's, it's focused on the way that time moves forward and time pushes us towards that end. But now, the imagery is deep and specific and, and almost absurd in terms of its uh, clarity, speaking of our death and our demise. So he says, The author backtracks and he considers the pleasure of wealth and advancement and labor, and he does so under the guise of considering death. The Hebrew poetry changes forms. It begins to speak about the fact that even though people knew that life is meaningless apart from God, just like Woody Allen, they instinctually know that they have value. They instinctually know that these things do have worth, that wisdom is of significance, and that it's better than folly. People actually deep down know that, but they don't know why they know that. So as I was researching this sermon, I I typed in meaninglessness. I was just curious what would pop up into Google. And one article immediately grabbed my attention. It's from BuzzFeed. Uh, The article is titled, The 31 Most Pointless Things of All Time. This article was written six years ago. And ironically, 30 of the 31 images which create the point line are now removed due to copyright infringement. So now... 30 times in the article, the punchline is replaced with the words, this image is no longer available. I hope you see the irony in that. In other words, this article itself, this BuzzFeed list, is now the 32nd most pointless thing of all time. It has no value. It has no significance. It is meaningless. So by the time we read Ecclesiastes 11, the author says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. Do you see what the philosopher is doing here? Here at the end of the book, he is now beginning to lift your line of vision. He is lifting your eyes above your normal line of sight. And he is saying, stop looking down at the world for answers. Stop looking just here on what is under the sun. Because all of these things ultimately are not going to please you. But he also sarcastically says, well, you're just going to do it. So go ahead, enjoy your life, do whatever you want. But then things get brutally serious when he adds, because... You're going to give an account to God for everything that you do. So what is the conclusion of the philosopher? The last verses of the book summarize. It says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God has given us this brilliant poem to remind us what life is really about. Right now, you and I need to know this. You and I need to know that from an earthly perspective, everything is worthless. We live in a world that loves to live for all the wrong reasons. But this biblical philosopher informs us that the gift of life is more than the sum of its parts. We were not made for this earth alone. We have Augustine's famous prayer that I think is so Uh, perfect to describe what is being said here. Augustine prayed, Lord, you have made us for yourself and we are restless until we find our rest in thee. I want to spend the remainder of our time simply rejoicing in the fact that the gospel changes everything. Before you knew Christ, you were living like this under the sun. You were pursuing your own satisfaction any way that you knew how, but you never caught satisfaction. You never reached it. It was just like chasing the wind. There was always something beyond your grasp that left you unsatisfied. But the gospel changes everything because we are not merely here today and gone tomorrow. We are not simply ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Yes, our physical lives will end and our bodies will decay and dissolve, but you are an eternal being you will go on forever. God made you to be everlasting. Your soul will not come to an end. So in Christ, everything in this life changes because you are not simply constrained by time. You are not simply living for the now. You are living for the life to come. This is why Paul can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he says, "'If the dead are not raised, then let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. But his whole argument in that chapter is that Christ has been raised. Jesus is alive, and because he has been raised, we too will receive everlasting imperishable bodies. We too will be raised eternally. This is why Paul can declare with confidence at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. I have Finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Is that you? Are you a believer? Can you say with Paul, That is me? I have not been perfect. Paul was not perfect, but I know that the Lord is going to award me on that day a great gift. Not because I have been perfect, but because I had loved him and loved his appearing. And he loved me first. The good news is that God did not leave us to wallow in purposeless meaninglessness. He did not leave us to live in this vapid life without God. He sent Jesus to be God with us. And after Christ had accomplished his mission by paying for sin at the cross and rising for our justification, and he ascended into heaven, then God sent the Holy Spirit to be God within us so that we might live for him. This changes the way that we view everything. This changes the way, for example, that we view pleasure. First of all, I want you to know that many of the things that we find pleasurable are evil. And the Bible tells us that we are to flee and we are able to flee empty, worthless, and harmful pleasures. We are able to leave them behind, for as it says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a good, I'm sorry, a pure heart. That's what we are able to do in Christ. Now we can pursue what truly gives pleasure. All of those things that are sinful We like them. We desire them. We hunger for them. We want them. Our body craves them, but ultimately those things lead to death. But there are things that we have been given that are to lead to pleasure. In fact, most of the things that lead our hearts to sin are good things that we just take in excess. We just pursue them with a love for them. There is this idea that if we just keep consuming that or consume it at the wrong time or in the wrong way, it will make us happy. But those things are not true. There is something that is ultimately going to give us the perfect amount of pleasure, the ultimate overflowing amount of pleasure. Psalm 16:11 describes that for us when it says, "In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." That's where we will find our ultimate pleasure. Now, this is not saying that we should stop enjoying the good gifts that God has given to us. Don't eat your food, don't drink your water, etc., cetera, et cetera. No, God gave us these good things for a reason so that we might enjoy them rightly. It just changes our hearts to do them with an eye of thankfulness towards God and an eye of obedience to God. 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The gospel changes our mentality in every way. For example, it changes our view of labor and work and toil. We might not desire to do a good job if our job pays too little or if nobody's watching us and keeping an eye on us or if we think that we have a boss that is evil or if the boss doesn't like us or if we don't like our job. But the New Testament tells us in Colossians 3:23 through 24, whatever you do, In whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your job is ultimately not about your paycheck. It is not even ultimately about feeding your family. It is not about just doing a good job for your own reputation. As Christians, the way that you approach your job boils down to the question of how you view Christ. Do you view him as worthy of your service? If you do, you will work heartily unto the Lord. And notice that this is not something Jesus is asking us to do arbitrarily. He has gone before us. He has lived this out. He has, in his life, shown us what it looks like. This Jesus is the only one who would ever be rightfully served by all people. He should have all of us as his servants. Yet, what does he say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Christians, God reveals to us that the kingdom priorities of advancement are not only different, but they are opposite to the priorities of the world. We are not supposed to scratch and claw for the approval of worldly promotion. Instead, Jesus teaches us what? That the last shall be first. We are taught not to look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are told that as much as we have done for the least of these, the lowest of these, the most forgotten and left out of these, as much as we have done for the least of these, his brothers, we have done them unto him, the Lord Jesus. Ecclesiastes shows us the horrifying concept of a world without God. It is nothing more than a joyless, hopeless, worthless cycle of pain resulting in death. Without God, nothing matters. Without God, nihilism is the right philosophical approach. The world is seeking ways to discover meaning. It is looking for ways to find purpose apart from God. But the Lord has graciously given us this book so that we might systematically deconstruct every avenue that people have ever traveled in order to seek worth or substance. It's not able to be found. Ecclesiastes lays bare the nature of man to want to control his own destiny or to explain the suffering or experiences that we face. God doesn't hide us from these tough philosophical questions. Rather, he presses us into them by pressing us into his word. This book explains that earthly wisdom is limited because we can't always understand why God is doing what he's doing. How many of you have seen unbelievers trying to explain what is going on in the world. I was interested to see a friend who is uh, an unbeliever post something on Facebook recently about how this is happening because the world itself is angry. I don't think this person who is an atheist by claim realizes that they are just acknowledging that they view the world itself as God. If it has a mind, if it is responding with, with animus towards us, this person is revealing they think that the world itself is alive. The world itself is God. It has no emotions. It is not attacking us. It's important for us to see that in Christ, we know that the world's perspective of life is untrue. There is value in wisdom. There is value because God is wise and we desire to be like God and to think like God. And there is value in justice because God is just and we desire to imitate him. We didn't get too deep into those sections of Ecclesiastes, but there's a lot of ink spilled on whether or not it's even worth it to get wisdom or if it's worth it to to seek justice because the just and the unjust go to the same place, to the ground, to the dirt, to the dust. We are naturally living under the sun. We are naturally living here on the earth looking for answers. Living in light of the gospel is what lifts our understanding to heaven. Every single action, every single thought of yours is an opportunity to bring glory and honor to your king. It is. And as a a living, ongoing, undying sacrifice, you are no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather you are transformed. Instead of being conformed to the patterns of thinking that this world has for us, instead of having this conformity to this idea that everything is meaningless or that there is some purpose or point outside of God, instead our priorities and practices are transformed. How? According to Romans 12, by the mercies of God. What does that phrase even mean? That phrase, the mercies of God, that is the gospel. That God was merciful to redeem People like you and me. He was merciful to take those who deserved destruction and substitute Jesus in our place at the cross. This is good news. This is the good news that the mercies of God permits us to have our minds renewed, which results in our transformation. Listen carefully. Your mind resets to under the sun kind of thinking. It does that very quickly. It does that very naturally. It does that very easily. It is easy to imagine that what you experience from your five senses is all that there is to inform reality. But Christian, you need the gospel. You need the gospel daily. You must be reminded because daily you forget. We once again imagine every morning that we are living only for the here and now. You have a list of things that you must accomplish for purposes that you desire to to complete we imagine that there is ultimate worth or ultimate value or ultimate power or ultimate prestige in the things of this world. That's when your soul begins to feel barren. That is when your eyes turn away from Christ and turn to lesser things. That is when you will sin because it will become more appealing. When you begin to have this under the sun mentality, you will fall deeply away from the Lord in terms of your actions and your attitudes and your words. For centuries, Even millennia, philosophers and scholars have searched for meaning. They have searched for purpose in life. And they've asked the question, what is the point? It's simply this. God made you to be satisfied in Him alone. But there was a barrier between you and Him. There was a barrier separating us from God. God then, in love, sent Jesus to save sinners. That is the point. So believer, set your eyes on Him. Set your eyes on the Jesus who came to die for you. Let your mind be renewed in him. See the world through the lens of the gospel because what you value is what you will chase. And if you value the things of this world, you will chase them and you will never receive them. You will never find satisfaction there. Ecclesiastes teaches that everything that you chase other than God himself will leave you empty-handed as if you were chasing the wind. But the good news is that Jesus lovingly chased you. Jesus left his throne, he came here to earth, and he died for sinners like us. And he rose again on the third day, and God sent the Holy Spirit to arrest our hearts. God has come and found us, God with us, and God within us. He has done everything necessary to make us one with the Father again. Jesus sought us and he bought us with his redeeming blood. This is important for us to understand because Jesus is the point. What is the point? Jesus is the point. Allow me to close in prayer with the words of 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, which simply says, To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.